0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: Mr Trump is among 19 people charged with a conspiracy to overturn the 2020 vote in the state of Georgia, allegations he's repeatedly denied.
2: While Mr Trump has pleaded not guilty in a criminal case brought by prosecutors in the US state of Georgia. The 13 counts include racketeering for pressuring state officials to reverse the election result,
0: Former President Donald Trump has several legal problems, the most recent being in the state of Georgia, where he and 18 co-defendants have been charged with a string of offences under Georgia's Racketeer, Influenced and Corruption Organisations Act, otherwise known as RICO. RICO Acts are popular across America. There's a federal RICO and 29 state RICO Acts. Originally created to fight the growth of the Mafia, today RICO acts are used in the prosecution of white-collar crime and cases involving political corruption. In this Rear Vision with me, Annabel Quince, the history of these RICO acts, how they've evolved and their use in America today. But let's start at the beginning. The first RICO Act was passed by the United States government in 1970 in order to fight the growth of mafia activities in cities across America.
3: What was going on in the US in the 60s was that there was a very big organized crime problem, like a mafia problem. My name's Karen Morrison. And my title is Associate Professor of Law at Georgia State University College of Law. In most of the the cities on the East Coast and to Chicago and Las Vegas, but definitely like New York, Philadelphia, Newark, the cities were pretty much run by the mob. They sort of had a lock on most of the construction contracts, on sanitation workers. It was a really big problem in the cities. That's why the federal government wanted to find a way to be able to try to start to dismantle these mafia organized crime families.
4: The organized crime, or as they say in the movies, the mafia, La Cosa Nostra, was very active in 1970. There was a tremendous fear among legislators and prosecutors law enforcement that there were not sufficient tools available to prosecute the people who were at the higher levels of these criminal organizations. My name is Michael Mears, M-E-A-R-S. I'm an associate professor of law at Atlanta's John Marshall Law School. The problem with prosecuting those cases back in 1970 was that you could get to the lower-level soldiers, the people who are actually on the street selling drugs, distributing drugs, or doing other types of crimes. But because the law in existence before the RICO statute was that it was difficult to get the higher-ups, the chiefs. It was hard to get the CEO. You could get the factory worker, but you couldn't get the CEO or the secretaries who ran the organizations. So the federal government came up with the legislation that eventually produced the RICO Racketeering Influenced Corrupt Organization Act. The RICO statute was, was designed to provide better tools for prosecutors to go after people who were operating criminal organizations as if they were corporations, as if they were actually a business and they had defined hierarchies. So that was the background behind the structure and the passage of these RICO statutes in 1970.
0: Professor G. Robert Blakey is America's foremost authority on RICO and began his career before the first RICO Act was introduced.
5: Let me tell you a little story. I was a a prosecutor in the Department of Justice in the Organized Crime and Racketeering section. And I was trying a case in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, involving a dice game, a big dice game. Needless to say, that was illegal. And so we had a major FBI takedown of it, and I was trying it. And during a break, I was standing in the urinal, and suddenly next to me was one of the defendants who I believe to be actually a member of the mafia. And he looked down at me and said, you're doing a good job, kid. Keep it up. And I was flabbergasted. So I went back and talked to my FBI agent. And I said, what is he talking about? And his answer to me, oh, well, you're losing this case. And I said, we're not losing it. We're going to get a conviction. He said, but you haven't shown, in the way you investigated it, the people from New York who owned it. And he was right. What we had done is we had taken out the dice game, but we hadn't stopped the mob family that was behind it. So I decided right then and there that I was going to figure out what had to be done to change that result. And
0: it was Professor Blakey who drafted the legislation that became the first federal RICO Act.
5: I actually wrote it on a a piece of paper, on a yellow sheet, and I brought it into work. And my secretary typed it up, I gave it to Senator McClellan, he okayed it, and he put it in. Yes, I drafted it.
0: And the story goes that he was drafting the bill while watching the 1930s gangster film Little Caesar, which is how the bill got the name Racketeer, Influenced, and Corrupt Organizations, or RICO. Now
4: this is RICO speaking. Rekha! Rico, R-I-C-O, R-I-C-O, Little Caesar, that's who. Hey, you're a big guy now, ain't you shooting your mouth off on the papers. So I ran out when it got hot, huh? You think I can't take it no more? Well, listen, you crummy, flat-footed copper, I'll show you whether I lost my nerve and my brains.
0: It was Blakey's bill that was signed into law by President Nixon in 1970.
1: Now that they have these tools, I think that we
5: can say that we shall now be able to launch a total war against organized crime, and we will win this war.
3: The genius of RICO, if you will, is that it gave prosecutors the opportunity to put together crimes committed by a number of people who were all connected, and the crimes happened over a long period of time. So before that, they kind of had to prosecute people you know, not one at a time, but sort of a handful at a time. They could prosecute them for conspiracy, but then all the people had to have agreed specifically amongst themselves and they had to show an agreement. Whereas with RICO, the racketeer-influenced and corrupt organizations law, they were able to, first of all, tell a much more all-encompassing story. So they were actually able to say, this is the Gambino family. This is how they're organized. This is how they make their money. These are the hierarchies in the organization. And then they could go back in time to crimes that the statute of limitations might have run otherwise, but because they could all be folded into RICO, they were able to reach crimes over a much longer period of time in all different places. And it was specifically designed to work against groups that were organized and that had a lot of members all doing different jobs, but basically the main goal of everybody was to increase the power and influence and finances of the organization.
4: You were not limited by jurisdictions. You were not limited by the venue of the particular crime. You could include in your prosecution under the RICO statute, crimes that occurred in other jurisdictions. Because if it's not just necessarily a federal crime, it could go and bring in state crimes. Also, it provided that all you had to do was prove that there was a predicate act, a crime had been committed, and then you could tack on a number of other crimes that were perhaps not related specifically to the crime that had been committed, but were part of this organization's manner of operation. And so it allowed the prosecutors to use cross state lines, across federal lines, and also did not limit the prosecutors to just crimes. You could involve a conspiracy. Let's say that a mafia had a legitimate business up in the Northeast, quite frequently. Sanitation companies were created by mafia, and they were perfectly legitimate companies. But then they would use these companies to launder money from their illicit organizations or illicit crimes. So the RICO allowed you to go after the legitimate legal company as well as the criminal acts committed by parties in another area of the organization.
0: One of the first prosecutors to be made famous by the use of the RICO Act was a young U.S. attorney from the Southern District of New York, Rudy Giuliani.
2: This case charges more mafia bosses in one indictment than any ever before. This is a great day for law enforcement, but this is a bad day, probably the worst, the
5: The first ones that came up were mafia cases, and those cases sailed right through. It culminated in New York, where they prosecuted the heads of the five families. Instead of just doing a family, they did the whole kit and caboodle. The group that led the five families was the group that they prosecuted. That was the case that made Giuliani, who was a United States attorney at that time, famous. He didn't design the statute,
4: and he didn't design that prosecution. It was designed by people in the FBI. The Federal Bureau of Investigation started indicting for the first time the heads of the crime families. You've probably all heard of the story of Don Gotti, who was charged four or five times and then was eventually brought down because of the use of the RICO, because they could connect Gotti to foot soldiers that they could never have done before the act. To use the analogy you see in movies, they cut off the snake's head before they were going after the tail. <laughs> and so with RICO, they could slice off the head and the snake had nowhere to go. That was the analogy that you I heard from my prosecutor friends.
0: Across America, law enforcement used the RICO Act to bring down mafia leaders and to deter would-be mafia bosses
4: from taking their place. It was not just the five families in New York. Philadelphia had a significant mafia family running all the way from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh and all over that area. So not just the five families that were cut off by the use of the RICO statute. It went nationwide. And what happened is that people were not stepping up to assume leadership roles because that was not the safe place anymore. And so you had fewer of these captains, as I recall, moving into these leadership roles because nobody wanted it. And so the deterrent effect, most punishments don't deter criminals. I've represented a lot of criminals back in my practice, and I rarely had anyone say, I wouldn't have done that if I thought I'd get caught. Deterrence is one of those academic subjects that we professors talk about. However, in this particular case, I think the RICO statute did have a deterrent effect on people standing out as the head of an organisation that was conducting crime.
0: But that was just the beginning. Once prosecutors understood the power of the RICO Act, they began using it against other criminal enterprises, including white-collar crime, in corporations and on Wall Street.
3: What prosecutors realised probably pretty quickly was that the mafia was not the only type of organized crime there was. There were gangs. There were even like white-collar types of prosecutions. There were like wide-scale stock frauds and stuff, which involved lots of people and many actions over a long period of time. So basically anything that did involve a group of people, it didn't have to be a specific company and it didn't have to be an official organization, but any type of group that could be identified at least by the prosecution and explained to the jury as an enterprise when you're dealing with multi-tentacled operations, it's very helpful to have something where you can kind of bring everybody together, all the different defendants that you can find, and put it together in a sort of a holistic narrative.
0: In 1980, 10 years after the federal RICO Act, the state of Georgia passed its own RICO Act.
5: I think today the most sophisticated RICO statute is in Georgia, the one that's been recently used against Trump and company. Giuliani associated himself with Trump, and he finds himself now being prosecuted under the state RICO statute.
4: It does have greater efficacy in the sense that fewer predicate criminal acts are required under the Georgia statute than under the federal statute. Also, under the Georgia RICO statute, you can expand the time limit on which you can bring in those predicate crimes. So you have a longer period of time that you can go back into the organization's activities. And the breadth and scope, it simply pushed out the outer limits of what the federal statute would more or less be confined to time and numbers of crimes, and number of types of crimes. Here in Georgia, it doesn't matter what the crime is. It can be a misdemeanor. It can be a criminal trespass crime. It can be brought under this. So that's, I think, the main difference between the Georgia RICO statute and the federal RICO statute. We've got cases here where acts that were taking place in Minnesota, New York, North Carolina are all part of the predicate acts for a RICO case here in
2: Georgia. Thank you for joining us. I'm here with the prosecutors and investigators who have worked diligently on the investigation of criminal attempts to interfere in the administration of Georgia's 2020 presidential election.
3: Fannie Willis is, I would say, a very effective prosecutor, and she also has the assistance of a lawyer, John Floyd, who is known as a RICO expert, who has helped her out on a number of cases and is also assisting with the Trump prosecution. So yeah, she has a very wide breadth of knowledge about RICO, and she, she prosecuted the Atlanta Public Schools scandal. She is extremely comfortable with it. And I would say, based on the indictment that her office issued, quite adept at using it.
4: Fannie Willis is a graduate of Emory University Law School, which is located here in Atlanta. She became a assistant district attorney a number of years ago under Paul Howard, who was then the district attorney, and was in fact the lead prosecutor in a case against the Atlanta School Board. Fannie went after the group of principals and teachers for changing test scores on students' standardized testing in order to increase the value of their school and get more money and more prestige. She even went after the superintendent and succeeded on all counts. She would have brought down the superintendent of education, but the superintendent died during the trial, (laughs) during these proceedings. But she got a number of indictments and convictions. And so that was her first big moment in the sun, so to speak. And rightly so. She's an excellent attorney. She knows what she's doing. But in the process of that, she also started using elements of the Georgia RICO statute. I think she, along with some of her staff members, she's assembled a staff of of prosecutors who really know. And if you're a defense attorney, it's really hard to grasp the complexities of this RICO statute, federal or state. You may have a great reputation as a defense attorney. But rarely do do attorneys specialize in RICO cases. And so you've got a whole staff here under Fonnie Willis. Well, Fonnie left the district attorney's office at one point because she had a falling out with her boss, the district attorney, because she thought he was corrupt (laughs) and called him out. And so she had to leave the office. Eventually, that district attorney was voted out of office. And then Fonnie ran against him on his reelection, and beat him, and now she's the district attorney. My knowledge of Fannie is that she's articulate, bright, and extremely smart when it comes to what a prosecutor can do using the right tools.
0: What will Fannie Willis need to prove under the Georgia-RICO Act in order to convict Donald Trump and his co-conspirators?
5: Well, the best thing for you to do is not to talk to me, but to get a copy of the Georgia Rico statute and a copy of the indictment. The indictment is a speaking indictment, meaning it sets out most of the evidence. It sets out how Rico was violated. And what's going to be shown is the former president, with Giuliani and others, attack the system for counting the votes in Georgia.
2: Today, a Fulton County grand jury returned a true bill of indictment, charging 19 individuals. Specifically, the indictment brings felony charges against Donald John Trump, Rudolph William Lewis Giuliani, John Charles Eastman. Every individual charged in the indictment is charged with one count of violating Georgia's Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act through participation in a criminal enterprise in Fulton County, Georgia and elsewhere to accomplish the illegal goal of allowing Donald J. Trump to seize the presidential term of office beginning on January
4: 20th, 21. Just to prove that two crimes took place within the definition of this organization. Once she's done that, then she can get guilty verdicts on all the other individuals, whether they were involved in those two crimes or not. What one conspirator does or another conspirator does under this RICO statute, if they're convicted and proven that they've committed at least two of these predicate acts, then everyone else who's under this umbrella can be found guilty and the conviction be upheld.
3: Well, first she needs to prove the existence of the enterprise. So she needs to show that all those defendants were associated, somehow, all working towards the same aim, which was basically to overturn the results here in Georgia. So she needs to show that. And then she needs to show at least two acts of racketeering activity in order to show a pattern. Now she's charged many more than that. But when you're looking at the count one, which is obviously the one that's most interesting to you, the RICO count, Giuliani, for example, is charged with a number of false statements where he had gone to see the Georgia legislature and then basically made a number of false statements about fake mail-in ballots or the allegations he made about Dominion Voting Systems equipment so that's a substantive crime as well as an act of racketeering activity.
1: We don't need dominion or anything else. We have we have all we have won this election in Georgia based on all of this. And there's there's nothing wrong with with saying that, Brad. You know, I mean, having the having a correct you, the people of Georgia are angry, and there's nothing wrong with saying that that you've recalculated. Well, Mr. President, the challenge that you have is the data you have is wrong. Uh, we, we talked to the congressmen, and they were surprised. But they, I guess there was a person named Mr. Raynard that came to these meetings and presented data. And he said that there was dead people, of, I believe it was upward of 5,000. The actual number were two, two, two people that were dead that voted.
3: Also, Trump is named in a for the solicitation of violation of oath by a public officer by speaking to the Speaker of the Georgia House of Representatives, trying to get him to call a special session, you know, basically to kind of like change the results. There's lots of solicitation of violation of oath by a public officer. So basically, that would mean trying to get a member of either the Georgia legislature or the Georgia executive, in particular, the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, to violate their oath of office by changing the results of the the election, either by finding the 11,000 votes that Trump wanted in his notorious call with Brad Raffensperger, or basically trying to get the legislature to call a special session. So those are the things that the prosecutor has to prove.
1: They're going around playing you and laughing at you behind your back, Brad. Whether you know it or not, they're laughing at you. And you've taken a state that's a Republican state and you've made it almost impossible for a Republican to win because of cheating. Because they cheated like nobody's ever cheated before. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find 11,780 votes which is one more than we have because we won the state and flipping the state is a great Testament to our country because it's a Testament that they can admit to a mistake or whatever you want to call it. If it was a mistake, I don't know. A lot of people think it wasn't a mistake. It was much more criminal than that.
4: The phone call, can you get me 11,000 votes? is very clear. See, the president has no authority. He's saying, well, I was doing it as president. I want to make sure we have. The president has no, absolutely no authority to interfere in local state elections. There's nothing in the Constitution. There's nothing in the presidential act at all that gives him the authority to call the secretary of state in Georgia and say, can you find me some votes? Now, again, it's back to the jurors. If the jurors say, well, I don't think he meant that, then Fonnie's not going to get a conviction, but it's going to be hard to find 12 people who would say, I don't think he was trying to interfere with the election. You have Giuliani coming to the state legislature. He came under oath and testified to the Georgia state legislature that there was voter fraud and that he had evidence of voter fraud. You have Giuliani talking about these two women as stealing votes, and now he's already admitted that he lied there. That's going to be hard evidence to refute. It's going to be hard evidence for a jury not to accept as indicative of an intent to violate the Georgia election laws.
0: So what what do the defense lawyers do? Like, how do you actually then create a defense to a RICO case like this one?
3: The first one is going to be there's no enterprise. I had nothing to do with this. I don't even know these people. <laughs> that already seems to be some of what some of the people are saying already. And that there was no association of people all working towards this goal. The other thing, I think, is going to be that some of the federal defendants are trying to make the argument that what they did was not a crime, but in fact, part of their job as federal officials. So Mark Meadows, who was the chief of staff for Trump's White House, just lost his motion to get his case moved to federal court. He may get that overturned on appeal. It's always unclear, but that's certainly a defense that at least some of the defendants are trying to do, which is that they shouldn't even be tried in state court because they were acting in their official capacity. I think another one of the defenses is going to be that they weren't trying to do anything wrong. They were simply concerned about the security and fairness of the election. And so they weren't trying to force anybody to violate their oath or commit forgery, that all this was they're being charged for simply trying to make sure that the election was fair.
4: Well, first of all, they're going to say it's political. They're going to say that the prosecution is based on nothing more than partisan politics. They're going to say this is all politically motivated and you as a juror can nullify whatever the facts are. And I think that's the first strategy they're going after is that it's all politics. And that may or may not work. There are very few other defenses that you can raise other than the facts aren't what they say they are. And then that's the reasonable doubt thing. I've been practicing law now since 1977. I was the head of the public defender system in the state of Georgia for a number of years. I got very realistic in my experience over what jurors will believe. (laughs) And jurors, generally speaking, no matter what their political persuasion, are going to follow the facts. And in this case, the facts, to me, seem very clear. And I think when Fannie Willis gets this case before 12 jurors, the defense is going to have a hard time. They're going to have to hope that the jurors buy into the argument. Not that the election was stolen. I don't think that anyone with, with any common sense would think that at this point. But what they're going to rely on is the jurors setting aside that Holy Ghost feeling and deciding that, oh, this is just politics. I'm not going to convict them. And that's going to be a hard sell, in my opinion.
0: Michael Mears, Associate Professor of Law at Atlanta's John Marshall Law School. My other guests, Karen Morrison, Associate Professor of Law at the Georgia State University. And G. Robert Blakey, retired professor from Notre Dame Law School. The sound engineer is Anne-Marie de I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision.